0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: A few years ago, my first guest tonight played for the Dundas Real McCoys, the senior team, when they were hosting the Allen Cup. That was at the end of his career. Prior to that, he had set a record that still stands in the American Hockey League when he collected 52 points, 52 points in 16 playoff games during a Calder Cup-winning run with the Edmonton Oilers farm team in Cape Breton. And before that... Well, before that is why I'm bringing him on tonight. Because back in the 1986-87 season, he scored an unbelievable 187 points in 61 games with the Humboldt Broncos, Broncos, who, of course, everyone knows about the Humboldt Broncos now. Nobody knew about them before, I don't think, outside of Saskatchewan. Today, everybody's familiar with that team. Bill McDougal uh, was that guy, and he joins me now. Bill, thanks for doing this tonight. Yep, pleasure to be here, Scott. Uh, it must be a little bit surreal. For someone who played there, who knows that rink, who knows that town, who knows the the whole history of the place, it must be pretty surreal when you turn on your TV or radio or newspaper or computer on Friday morning or Friday night and see what happens.
2: Yeah, I'm, um, I got calls at about 6.30 in the morning from uh, friends out there. And uh, so it, it was, uh, you know, just finding out and all that stuff. And obviously, we all know what the... The degree of it was um, so it was uh, yeah it was a tough day.
1: Is that how you found out first when you got calls?
2: Yeah, I, yeah. And what were- I, I, I just knew, I just uh, I was told that there's a bus accident and there's a lot of fatalities. And I don't know the degree of it yet, but that was at six thirty. Yeah.
1: And those were people from out there that you were friends with still.
2: That's correct. Yes.
1: Do you When they call and they start to tell you this, having been to such a small little place, I mean, it's not a word that we, you know, Humboldt is not something that comes up in conversation a lot. When they said that, did you have to sort of ask them to repeat it? Did, I mean, did you say Humboldt? Did you say the Broncos? Like, does it click in right away when you've been there?
2: Uh, just uh, just thoughts and then, you know, getting up and and watching the news and, and just, you know, trying to get as much information from people as you can and, you know, obviously... You don't know really anything, you know, so you don't want to, you know, but to, to just be in there and everything and just saying, like, oh, because I know the community, I know the people, I know the rink, I know how how much the Broncos mean, uh, you know, to the community. And, uh, you know, it's the, the, the one in town and they love the Broncos. Um, they're the most successful team in uh, Saskatchewan history for Tier 2 Junior A. Um, always have a winning team, championship team for many, 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 many years. Um, uh, the year I was there, we went 56 and four. So it, it's a powerhouse there, and they're all well known. I mean, m- you know, mostly in Western Canada, but they bring players in from you know all over Canada, all over the United States. Um, we had guys from Finland and Sweden on our team. So,
1: How did you end up there? Because uh, you're you were an East Coast guy who grew up in Toronto, and you end up there. How did you get there?
2: Um, I, I got a call from them, and uh, they just uh, wanted me to come out and try out. And I said, uh, yeah, and then they sent me some information, and uh, I read up on the team, and uh, you know, got to know the history of the team. And uh, I knew I was going from Toronto to a small farming community, <laughs> 5,000, five thousand, six thousand people, okay. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't culture shock there. Like you, the people made you feel like you know you were one of them
1: what bill what I think a lot of people are kind of would be surprised by and I've been surprised by this is tier two hockey here in Ontario and we've had it we had the Hamilton Red Wings for a number of years we still have the Burlington Cougars we have others Uh, it's not it's not always considered the highest level we now have the OHL we have other teams around here I think a lot of people would be surprised to know a the level but B the fact that they would obviously if they found you they were scouting or at least searching the entire country to find players
2: yeah i mean uh if you have two players on the team that are from humboldt uh a small town uh that's a lot so they're recruiting all over the country and they bring these uh, young kids and players and and uh like I said, we had players from all over the place. The hockey, I mean, we lost, we were, we were hosting the, the Centennial Cup, which which is the RBC Cup now, um, back then. And we lost in the final game of the Canadian Championship. So we, you know, like we had a, the, 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 the hockey is comparable to the Hamilton Red Wings and, uh, you know, just same level. It's a tier two hockey. Get a lot of players like are 16, 17 that go on to the Western Hockey League. And then move on to pro hockey. I was just right? going to
1: ask you that. Like, is this? That's the other thing. Is are these guys who are playing on this team? Are these guys who are having big dreams future from here for NHL for other pro? Or are they guys who want to play competitive and this is kind of as far as they're going to go?
2: No, no, no. no. There's there's guys there that are are young and uh, sixteen, seventeen, maybe last cuts from Western Hockey League teams, and maybe the, you know the next year they'll they'll make the team, right? And then. Uh, but uh, the, no, the, you know the, I, I played with the, a few guys that were on the team that were first round draft picks, so into the NHL. So it's um, you get a lot of college scholarship guys going scholarships to U.S. colleges. So they do their recruitment, and they uh, they like I said, it's uh, they're the winningest team in, in SJHL.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML.
1: Bill, what is Humboldt like? We, we got a glimpse of it, I think, yesterday, if anyone watched that memorial service or the, uh, it's not a memorial service yet, it was a, a community service, I guess, is what it really was, but is what is the place like? What is the town like?
2: Well, it's it's, it's a farming community, obviously, and, uh, you know, the maj- um, majority of the people are farmers, and uh, the town is uh, not very big on... Um, um, five six thousand people and then you got your all your farms that could uh you know go for 10 20 miles outside of town and uh you're about an hour and a half hour you know from saskatoon and uh so it, it, to explain to people there i mean it's just, i've never seen a tight-knit group you know so it's uh like I said, but,
1: uh, if you're in, if you're an hour and a half or so from anywhere else, though, probably you are pretty, everybody, you don't leave all the time. So everybody knows each other. I mean, when, and that's such a cliche, everyone knows each other, but it sounds like that's actually true.
2: Oh, it is. And, uh, like I said, these families take, uh, every one of the players is billed out to a family. And, uh, I mean, if the whole town pretty not much goes to the game or, you know, them or they, they go to school with them or, in some capacity, everybody knows everybody, and uh, it's like, like I said, you know, coming from a big town and you go there, you just you, you feel special.
1: When you rolled in there for the first time as a sixteen-year-old? No, no, I was uh, nineteen. Nineteen. Okay, when you roll in as a nineteen-year-old, your first time, what were your first impressions when you took your first tour around Humboldt? Which probably didn't take all that long, quite honestly. But what did you think when you first saw the place?
2: Well, I mean. <laughs> I was saying, Oh, this is small. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, just, it, it didn't, it, it didn't take long to, and especially, you know, I seen how many guys are there trying out for this team. I, I was uh, like, it was, you know, there was, there were 75, a hundred kids there, you know what I mean? From all over Western Canada, Ontario, wherever. And, uh, um, trying to make this team. And, and I, I, I got a, a feeling from the guys that were, you know, from, you know, four or five hours around there that uh, this is the team to play for it mattered and uh, it mattered and mattered yes
1: and when you say that the people that pretty much the whole town i mean it really is is hockey during the winter the social thing to do is it the community focus of this so these guys as you say everybody would have known and not just known by name but everybody would have known or be familiar personally, with these guys
2: they known, yes they would have all everybody would have known these guys personally i mean uh i'm I, if i say 80 percent, that might be low so
1: um and even if they don't know i'm from what i am understanding also, yeah there's i mean they're they are legitimate local celebrities
2: they are they are and uh like i said the players are together all the time you know ha- hanging out like, i mean not just five or six of them together the whole team is together and uh it's it, it was just you know like it it was uh it was special being there and 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 you know that the feeling you get when you go to other rinks out there in Saskatchewan you know the three hours the eight hour drives you know when you're coming into another rink Humboldt's here so it's a powerhouse and the town is very special.
1: You talk about that though, and uh, and clearly you have been on those bus rides. If you're an hour and a half from anywhere, you are an hour and a half from the closest next game, obviously, uh, you would have spent an awful lot of time on those buses.
2: Yeah. Um, I, you know, that's, you know, one of the first things that I was thinking about, um, it was, uh. The bus rides, I didn't, I, you know, it was the first time leaving Toronto and I played in the Toronto area and all that, and you know, the bus rides weren't like that, you know, and then the snowstorms, and you got the planes. so the drifts are coming across and, um, you're on a straight road for so long and then you make one right and maybe another left and you're, you're there.
1: Did it ever build it in, in all, in the year you played there, when you talk about the snow and the drifts and the long drives, did it ever cross your mind? that something could happen did it did the thought of an accident ever cross your mind when you were on those buses
2: um, you know maybe in a couple long rides when you're in a snowstorm I mean if you're driving your car you would think about it right so it's um, so about something you think about and the minors you' you're riding the bus for 10 12 hours it, it could happen to anybody so I don't think as a player when you're trying to follow your dream you don't really you know you don't really think about that.
1: But you have, when I was calling you earlier today, you had mentioned you've probably been by that spot on that stretch of road twenty, thirty times over that year.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I know exactly where where it happened, and uh, that would be Nippon. It's probably the closest uh, closest uh, place to play, two and a half hours away. So that route uh, you'd have to go that route to to branch out everywhere else too. So yes, that was a you know a route that I'm familiar with.
1: And Bill, as a guy who played, I mean, you played in the minors for a while, you played in the NHL as well, but I mean, you had your your time not only here, but in the the AHL. And I don't want to be gloomy or maudlin or or depressing or whatever, but I, I couldn't help but think when you think of all the teams in all the hockey leagues around this country, and not just hockey, pick any other sport, and all the people who are traveling by buses and planes for sports, I'm... I'm frankly amazed this hasn't happened more often, thankfully. I mean, obviously, thankfully it hasn't, but, boy, it just struck me today. With so many miles under the wheels of those buses for all those sports, it's amazing this doesn't happen more often.
2: Yeah, no, it, 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 that's true. Um, I'm, I'm very surprised. And, you know, you, you look in even the States with all the minor league yeah. teams, East Coast League teams, and all those teams that are traveling on a, on a nightly basis, um, and nothing, you know, thank God nothing happened. A
1: hundred percent. A hundred percent. But it's, it is, uh, there are a lot of people out there who are doing this day after day. Uh, Bill McDougall, yeah. really appreciate the time. Uh, what do I say? I mean, it's, uh, this has got to be horrible for you as well, even though you're not there now. But I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today.
0: Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Area rating came up for discussion again at City Council. Which is an introductory sentence that I know is going to cause a few of you to roll your eyes and say, oh, but before you do and flip over to find something more Kardashian-y to entertain you, remember what this is actually about because it is way more interesting and way more, frankly, annoying in a lot of ways than what the name would suggest. I got to come up with a better name for this. It's not a really good name. But this is the program that gives councillors in the old wards, in the old city of Hamilton, a bunch of money to spend at the councillor's discretion. Now, theoretically, it's supposed to go for infrastructure, but that has not always been the case, and that's what's led to some of these discussions lately. Now it appears that council at least wants to put some rules in place to really hammer down what this thing can be for and maybe to clarify some of where these dollars are going to be going. One of the counsellors who was in the middle of the discussion today and um, quite engaged in this particular topic, Donna Skelly from Ward 7, who joins me now. Donna, thanks for doing this today.
3: Well, I always love to uh, speak to you at night. You know that, Scott.
1: Let's uh, clip that one, Lisa, and keep that sentence for later. Um, (laughs)
3: All day, in the morning sometimes.
1: (laughs) i got to say, while I, okay, and again, first of all, area rating may have the most boring name by name in the history of anything that's ever been interesting at City Council, but I am a little puzzled by this whole thing, not just today, because when Council asks for rules to be created or rules to be established for this, there are already rules for this and I pulled this thing out. It was someone else posted it online. It's the what it's all about. It, it says the tax capacity the following terms referenced in this policy are defined as the tax capacity that will be directed in the former city of Hamilton to infrastructure investments as a result of the shift in area rating methodology. Donna, it's right there that this is supposed to be for infrastructure. And then they define infrastructure and I don't think we need to go through what a definition of infrastructure is. How is this confusing?
3: I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. But I do believe that councilors have been given far too much leniency and are spending it on things other than infrastructure—hard infrastructure. Hard infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure. When we talk about infrastructure, we're talking about roads and bridges and um, you know uh, buildings, repairing buildings, our sewer system. But now we're spending, and I just went through it, and it really bothers me because if you look at some of, and it's usually wards one to three, to be honest with you, we're we're spending money, and and it's not that the the, the programs that that are being uh, given this money don't warrant funding; they're all fabulous programs, but this isn't what this money is to be used for. So when you start uh, giving thousands of dollars to school nutrition programs, and let me see, I've got a number of them on. Um, Taste buds, the Earl Kitchener Playground. That's an education. That, that's the Ministry of Education's responsibility, not the city of Hamilton's. Now we are subsidizing the Ministry of Education. We're subsidizing the province, spending money that should be used to fix their roads, putting in uh, playgrounds that should have been covered by the province, the Westdale Theatre. Why are we giving $220,000 to um, a theater, the, the construction or the renovation of a privately owned theater? It's not that it's not a great project. It's a fabulous project. But that's not what these, these dollars are supposed to be used for. And then when you get into the discretionary funds, which are part of this $1.7 million that all of the ward counselors, ones to eight, receive annually, 100000 is isolated. It's called discretionary funds. And this is money that we can use um, for projects that uh, still are supposed to be infrastructure projects. And I'm looking at them, and we're spending money on um, community groups and theater groups and choirs and and um, hosting events, hosting movie nights, and sending kids to uh, hockey tournaments around the world. And, and you know, the, it's not what it's for. And I don't think it's that difficult to stick to the rules. Well, to a lot of,
1: Donna, to a lot of people, and I've heard this, and I know you've heard it, and I'm sure a lot of other people have heard it, to a lot of people, this looks like a a chunk of cash that is being used to win favor and maybe earn votes from certain groups around a particular ward.
3: Well, that's what it looks like to me. It really does. We have a cap for giving community organizations um, uh, some money. So it's $350, that's it, per year. So when somebody comes up and says, can you support our organization? Yes, but we can't spend more than $350. If you want an ad in their program or you want to give them money to sponsor something or you want to buy tickets, the maximum amount of money you can spend is $350. But if you go through what some of the counselors have spent, it's in excess of thousands of dollars. And I'm not sure why... They believe that we should circumvent these rules and even on the sponsorships, for example, and, and simply hand out grants upwards of, you know, in, in some cases, it's six, seven thousand dollars. Now, some of these organizations, um, in, or some organizations in the city feel really cheated out because they have followed the proper procedure when they're applying for funding through our grants program. Yet some counselors are bypassing that whole system and simply handing out money in excess of $350 annually to other organizations. I just don't think it's fair, and I don't think it's playing by the rules.
1: Well, you, that's, you're, that's the bottom Okay, line. so you're on your first term of council right now, so this, this may go back well before even you arrived on here, but how did we get to this? How did we get to here where we're doing sponsorships and drones and other things and have sort of seemingly lost sight in some cases of what this is for?
3: We don't push back. As a council, we have approved every dollar that was spent. We aren't questioning our fellow councillors. I'll brag, mine, if you look at the Ward 7 budget, I haven't spent one penny that wasn't supposed to be spent where it was supposed to be. All of the funds, and that's because when we put something forward, and if there's any question as to whether or not we should be uh, purchasing it or funding it, I'll, I'll make a call, or my staff member will make a call to city staff, and they'll say it's a gray area. As soon as I hear it's a gray area, if it's a gray area, we're not going to do it. If we have to question the validity of it, we're not going to do it. And I think that that's a very easy um, policy to follow. If we aren't sure of whether or not this is should be funded, then it probably shouldn't be. So we don't do it. Because in my opinion, it's pretty clear. If it's infrastructure and it falls within the rules that are that are clearly outlined uh, in what you read at, at the beginning of this interview, then I think that we can um, determine within our offices and with a tiny little bit of guidance from staff whether or not we should be um, spending money on it. But we've, ha- you know, we've we've fallen into this area where we're now using terms such as soft infrastructure or social infrastructure. That was a, apparently a term that was coined by Brian McCaddy, and Councillor Aiden Johnson was suggesting that that, um, because that was coined and, and in his first, or his term prior to Councillor Aiden Johnson's term when McCaddy was in, in uh, office, he allocated some of his area rating funds on social infrastructure. So now we're getting into cultural grants. That was, in Aiden's, um estimation, that has now set a
1: precedent. I don't believe so.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
1: Donna, you know, when when council today asks staff to come up with these stricter rules or harder rules or more guidance on what the rules are, would it not make as much sense or more sense to just say, let's just, this is all money from the taxpayers. It all comes from the same pot. Let's just not have this anymore. And let's just have leave counselors out of this to choose these things and let city staff spend the money on problems they need to fix whatever they feel is necessary
3: well it may have to get to that because it's it's almost an abuse of of the um, ability to use these these funds for infrastructure and when you've got money and we're not talking about a hundred dollars we're talking about thousands of dollars going to pay staff or consultants uh, we have something in wards one and two called participatory budgeting. So that's where they allow the residents, members of their community to decide to vote on what they would like to spend this infrastructure funding on, this discretionary funding on. And I assumed initially when I heard about it, I thought that's great, it's democratic, that it was, you know, a volunteer organization got together and they, you know, they decided how they wanted to spend it. But no, a consultant is hired at you know thousands of dollars, and then there's thousands of dollars spent on printing materials, and thousands of dollars spent on supplies, and to to engage with the community. It would be one thing if it was a volunteer exercise, but you now we're talking about fifty, and sixty, and seventy, and eighty, and ninety thousand dollars spent to a consultant to simply determine how the fund should be spent. We had in in Ward Two a fifty thousand dollars to fund an art website and you know this is not what it's for they're great they're great projects they uh, they, they deserve some certainly a council to look at whether we should be supporting it but this is not the fund that should be used for these particular initiatives this is for hard infrastructure
1: so would there See? be incredible screaming and yelling if somebody on council suggested we should just Stop area rating and allow this money to go into a general infrastructure pool. Would would people go nuts on council if that was proposed?
3: I think so because it will have an implication on our taxes. But um, that may be where we go. I, I don't. I don't understand why we simply don't apply the rules. Apply the rules. You spend the money on um, improving the infrastructure in your ward, and loose terms and gray areas will not be permitted we will simply say this is if it, it's got to be hard infrastructure again I'm not arguing that a lot of these social programs don't warrant our attention and some funding but this is not the pot that the funding comes from and that's this is one of the reasons we have such a massive infrastructure deficit and it's unfair to the taxpayer because a lot of these projects if you really look through them and I, and I encourage you to do it Line by line, it's all listed in our, um, it's called Audit and Finance and Administration meeting today. It's all online, and all the appendices have a list of how we've spent this money. And if you go through it, it's, it's shocking. It really is how we are spending what should money that should be allocated for uh, hard infrastructure in the city of Hamilton.
1: Does this, but does, again, does this having each person with a, and again, not everyone, but having each where people with their individual pocket of cash, does it not reinforce the idea that each councillor is a king or a queen of their little fiefdom and it's not for the betterment of the broader city that we're looking for fixing our little nook of the world and that's all that matters? That, that's, how, that's one of the ways that it comes across to me. It's not a citywide betterment. Let me make sure that this is about my little thing and I will make sure that that is fine and, and whoever else has to deal with their thing, well, whatever.
3: I, I agree to an extent. I do believe we have to somehow ensure that that there is uh, equality, if you will, right across the city, because we do focus on the downtown core, and rightly so. Um, ward 2 is one of the more unique wards. It, in my opinion, I think that um, Councillor Farr actually deserves more funding for staffing. I think he probably has uh, more issues to deal with than any other councillor in any other ward in the city, But that can be addressed. I think that that should be addressed. It really should. Um, But having said that, I also believe that we should be looking at the city in its entirety and not at our own specific little fiefdoms and arguing that I deserve more money than you because the needs of my people are greater than yours. That's not um, a city building um, approach, but it has become this way because we are fighting to get funding for infrastructure to spend on our area we've had burst pipes as you know on the mountain about three years ago it was it was an incredible winter and we had uh, a terrible time where a lot of people were without water for days and days and that's simply because of 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 the outdated um, uh, infrastructure on the mountain we have roads that need to be addressed more sidewalks urbanization but then you can look at the downtown core It, it has its own unique needs as well let let alone what you know the the rural areas, which in my opinion are probably the most neglected when it comes to attention from city council. So, in some ways, yes, uh, perhaps we should just simply say that the funding doesn't exist. Now you have to remember it's only wards one through eight, so the um, the burbs and and rural Hamilton doesn't have access to these funds. So well, really that is, that's it is a, it is a unique it is a unique power, if you will, perk to, you know, to, in many ways, to um, increase your popularity, if you will. That's, that's
1: a report. whole other, that's a whole other, well, we got to go, that's a whole other part of it that uh, I, I understand the, the background of it, but, uh, yeah, I, I...
3: Take a look at it, Scott, really. Read and and look at where this money is going and
0: you'll shake your head.
1: Councillor Donna Skelly, always appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Anytime.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Let me bring Don Robertson in here. From the Dundas, we had an earlier Dundas, a double Dundas Real McCoys day. We had Bill McDougall on here earlier last hour talking about Humboldt, one of your former players who had played as a young man out there. And now Don Robertson, who is the guy who runs the whole Real Uh McCoy operation.
4: Billy was quite a pr- prolific scorer. He sent me a message Saturday morning, said he was really struggling with it. He talked to his billets, and and um, I heard the tail end of your interview with him and sent him a note and said, you know, good for you, and he was telling me that all the guys had got back together again. Maybe he told you that in the show, but like, uh, they'd all reunited, the guys he played with. Did he ever rack up some points? I looked on 187 and he, points in 61 games. Oh. <laughs> That's not bad. Well, it, I don't know. I don't know what you talked about. You know, he holds the American Hockey League playoff scoring record.
1: You know, and the funny part about that is, yes, he does. He had fift, uh, fifty-two points. Fifty-two points in sixteen playoff games. Even Wayne Gretzky, I think, forty-four points in a playoffs was his most that he ever had. Uh, no, he wasn't. Bill McDougall was not Wayne Gretzky, but at you know for that one playoff run, he, he was Gretzky. For, he, he was, was, was for sixteen games. Yeah, he was Gretzky-esque for that time, but what. I had forgotten about when I was finding him today, trying to track him down, is who was his coach with the Cape Breton Oilers the year they won the Calder Cup on that year that he did it, who has another guy with a connection to Hamilton. And I know the answer. The head coach of that team was George Burnett, who was the first coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs when they came here. Do you know who was the general manager of that team?
4: The Cape Breton Oilers? I'll say Don Robertson. You're close. The... Um no, oh, I've forgotten his name. The commissioner of the American Hockey League. I didn't know that. Dave Andrews. Dave yep. Andrews. So we had Billy McDougall play. We had Dan Curry that played on that team. Uh, and we had Wayne Cowley, who was the goalie. And uh, we were coming back on a bus trip. And uh, Cowley came up to the front to uh, – he was at a tea, And he come up and he was – Looking for some water or tea to drink and soothe his throat on the way back, and we were laughing about uh, Doogie's uh, success—26 goals and 26 uh, assists. I said, "Where did you rank in the MVP validating for the uh, MVP of the playoffs?" He said, "I was 16 and 0 in net. Nobody's ever done that before." He said, "I don't I didn't get one first place vote."
1: <laughs> I don't doubt that. You know, you mentioned, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I think it has been, um, there's been a lot of discussion and I don't want to be keeping things real dour tonight, but you mentioned the bus and driving home. You've been involved in minor hockey and minor league hockey and all kinds of hockey for a long time. Does this change anything? Does this situation in Humboldt change anything with how teams do travel and buses and everything else? Or is that just one of the things you have to accept as part of the package of minor hockey that we're not flying everywhere? You have to get there to play games. This is just what we have to accept as a risk and just hope and pray that it never happens. You know, they they, they tell you the stats are
4: that it's safer to fly than drive, and a lot of people are a little fearful of flying. And somebody's going to do the math, it certainly won't be me, on how many miles between the American League and the East Coast League and the Junior Leagues in, in the it's United staggering. States... The OHL, and that's just the hockey. Yes, there's baseball, there's basketball, there's soccer. Yeah. The, pick your sport. But somebody's going to do the math on how many miles are put on on a bus by minor, junior hockey, and so on, and it's going to be absolutely staggering. So, uh, I heard you and Bill talk about it. It's, I guess, the, probably the more unbelievable part is
1: it happens as seldom as it does. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. And and but it, there's no other. There's no other alternative, is there? No, no. It's the only way to get it. It's it's it's
4: safer than having the, Well, you can't have all the players. I mean, look at they. They have uh, especially out west in Saskatchewan. I mean, they don't think it's a big deal to spend three hours in a car to go get milk and bread.
1: But I but mean, everything's if, so far apart. But even if you said, okay, you know what? We'll have each person drive themselves in their own car. Well, first of all, that numerically mathematically that raises the odds of something bad happening oh, we sure. know we've had examples here the Porto family which everyone remembers from yeah. from Hamilton I mean these are horrible tragedies it, it, I just don't I don't see how you it's something you never want to have happen but I don't know how unless you shut down sports I don't know how you prevent it well, you can't and you carry on they didn't stop the space shuttle
4: one um, one blew up after the launch it's uh, it's always part of a risk it's like getting in your car and driving to work every day I mean, you got to come down to 403 to go to the spec. I mean, there's lots of accidents on the 403 and, and and hopefully, um, you know, there's never any tragedies, but it is part of the game. It it is part of the way of life. And what astonished me about this is, and you never want to lose one life is the fact that over half the people on that bus died. Like that's. That's
1: the stat to me that is staggering because they've had other accidents. the The Swift Current Broncos, yeah, it was, it was four. The, it was the Broncos, right? Yeah, Swift it was Current, both Broncos. Yeah. Wow, what are the odds of that? And there, that just dawned on me this very second. What are the odds of that? No, I I was listening
4: uh, to somebody on the radio today that was talking about the Broncos, and the, and the guy said, I can't believe it's the Broncos again. He thought it was Swift uh, Swiss Current or Swift Current when
1: he first heard it. Yeah, and they lost. Yeah. I think they had four people.
4: Yeah, four people four died. People and that's that's, and that's, still, that's horrible. That's high on a bus. But half these, over half the passengers on this bus died. But if you saw, and social media is full of it, but if you saw the the carnage afterwards,
1: holy crap. Yeah, I just don't know. I just It was bad. I just don't yeah. know what you do. I don't think there's a, 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 a sadly, I don't think there's an answer. And I don't think it, there's a, especially in winter when there's snow, and Bill was talking about the snow and the drifts and everything on the plains. You just, it's. What do you do? It the tragedy worsened today when they found out they'd
4: misidentified one of the uh, young athletes that had died, and yeah, I, somebody's ecstatic, but
1: somebody's going, "Are you kidding me? How do you make this mistake?" Okay, so and and this this has been a, you know a lot of talk today, and a lot of people t- so, uh, taking sides almost on is the coroner the biggest idiot in the history of the world or something else? Look, I'm I I don't know where they were doing where the coroner is located or whatever. But somewhere out there, I can bet you all the money I have that there has never been a day when that coroner had 15 or 14 cases brought in simultaneously. All blonde, all teenage athletes, basically. And probably worked 48 hours straight on this. And you're right. They'd all dyed their hair blonde and they were all significantly injured or worse. And... Until I hear some other reason, I am as horrible as it is, I'm going to cut that coroner a little bit of slack.
4: Yes, that's a fair comment,
1: without question. If I find out that it was complete and utter lack of care, we can have another discussion. But I'm looking at this thinking, put yourself in that guy's position, who probably has never had anything remotely close to this, with all the eyes of the country and pressure to get the names out. And what I don't understand, the trickier part for me, Don and again, there's probably a logical explanation for this, is the, the, the boy who was still alive in the hospital, how they wouldn't have recognized that that was not the person who was identified that way. Now, there, there, I've heard people today, and I don't want to get gruesome, but there, I've heard people explain why that may have been the case. Unrecognizable. And, But still, it's, I, I'm, an, I'm not at the point right now, or I'm going to jump on the bandwagon and be ripping this coroner or the people involved in this, because as I say, I'm suspect, I expect that they've probably been working 48 hours straight, and who knows how the mistake was made. And they're all small towns. I, I'm, not,
4: I'm not defending anybody, but they're small towns, you're right. When was the last time they had a tragedy
1: of that magnitude? I bet you if they to brought to in two with. deaths simultaneously, that would be a load for that area to deal yeah. with for the coroner. And now you've got 14 plus another one comes up, you got 15. And here's the other part about this that you, that, you know, goes beyond. Again, I don't know where the coroner's office is, but if it's it right in that area, there is a very good chance he may have known some of these people, which puts now an emotional thing on what this person is doing as well, which can affect what you're doing. So until I hear that there was just gross negligence. I'm cutting the guy some slack, or the woman. It could be a woman. I mean, whoever it is, the coroner or coroners. I'm cutting them some slack because this is not something you're dealing with every day.
4: But it, when you find out that the error was made, no matter how or why, oh, it's it gut wrenching. It's 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 almost piling on. You know the tragedy. It's I don't know if you had the time or or you were available last night. I watched the vigil. Yes, I did. And um,
1: and the uh, the team chaplain. Who was sensational? Was under the circumstance. I, that's a, probably a bad word to use, but he was. He was. I he, thought he was remarkable. He got an applause. The whole building applauded him. And I'm and, sitting there. I got tears running
4: down my cheeks. Going, I don't get this. I don't understand it. But he didn't either. He didn't either. And he, he was uh, he was brilliant. He he
1: he was uh, he was brilliant. Can I say something about that though? Cause I really, and we weren't going to go down. I, I wasn't going to spend much time on this, but I'm, I'm, we will, um, it struck me watching that how different this would have been if this had happened in Toronto or in Montreal or in Vancouver or somewhere like that. And the reason I say that is not that the people, it would have been every bit the same level of tragedy. It like the, the impact on the people involved would have been just as much. But watching that yesterday, watching that service, that was so, to me, uh, honest. That's who they were. Yeah. And Don Cherry was there, and Don Cherry was not plopped in the front row where he would be seen. He was sitting up with the people. And the prime minister was 10 rows back. I, I, I'm not being totally cynical, but if this had been in a real big city... You would have, I'm sure you would have seen a parade of politicians to the lectern to talk and people, important people trying to sit where they could be seen to make sure that they were grieving appropriately. This was, I thought, a very honest, small town <coughs> reaction. And prime minister, if you want to come, you are more than welcome to come and there, you know, sit wherever. I I was um, I, I I was blown away by just the honesty of the thing that that's who they are and they weren't going to change it for anybody. That's that small town. they the the pastors' talk was plainly what that community, largely largely Christian community. He didn't whitewash it. He gave the talk that he would give at his church, and I thought he didn't water it down. He didn't do anything. That's who they are.
4: I I I will bet you dollars to donuts that that uh, the people that organized that didn't have to say to Justin Trudeau and Don Sherry, you won't have a speaking part. I'm sure they were there for the right reasons. It's, uh, Justin Trudeau's like shooting fish in a barrel for some, but um, I, like you, I didn't know Grapes was there. Uh, Until the camera passed at, them. at the tail end of it, they they had a quick shot at Trudeau, and you're right, you, I mean, it wasn't even a clear shot. He was just sitting there with all the other folks, and I didn't know Grapes was there till they put a shot on him when he got up to leave. Mm-hmm. Now that's that is Don Cherry. And uh, oh,
1: I, that's Don cherry. I'm uh, yes, and and I, I think that that would have been the case anywhere. I'm saying I think that there are some places, bigger places where you might have had more people trying to use this for some sort of, well, they to make been, sure you be seen. You know what?
4: Anybody that wants to use that kind of a uh, of uh, platform to get any kind of recognition is a scumbag. I you mean, don't think that would happen? Wrong Probably would have around here more so. I don't mean to Hamilton me. necessarily. I am t- just. No, saying, I'm I am talking I, Toronto. I, you said Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and I don't know, but if they did, they're scumbags. Well, and to me, uh, watching that and growing up in a town of five hundred, and uh, you know, being a Flamborough kid. To me, that epitomized small town Canada. Like, absolutely. Everybody was there with their hockey jerseys on. They were wearing blue jeans and baseball caps, and that's rough, some, rough Riders hoodies. And yeah, that's how they live. That's what they are wearing their heart on their sleeve, and being there for all the right reasons, not being there to be seen, but being there because
1: they cared. And again, I go back to and you brought it up, and you mentioned it with the pastor and his and what he it wasn't really a sermon. It was his, he talked, he talked. And there are places where somebody would have wanted to pull it back for broader acceptance, shall we say of what he was saying. And I I applauded him vigorously for this is who he is. This is what he represents. This is what that town is. These are the people that are in his town. And he talked as if he was talking to the people. Not he wasn't talking to urban Canada, no, and he wasn't talking down to anybody. He was, he was saying, talking to his people, and I. There's a lot of people that, if they knew suddenly that TSN was going to be broadcasting this across the country, would have adjusted what they were saying to be something different.
4: Yeah, but he what what he did, Scott, and 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 uh, there are others that would be far more familiar with a good sermon than I am. But to me, the television cameras were irrelevant to that man. Yeah. Yeah, that's he my was, point. Exactly. He was talking to his parishioners. That's exactly. And it. the entire town said he sat behind the bench every game. Didn't want to go to the game. His kids wanted him to go to the game. The carnage he saw, the darkness, the sadness in the hospital. I mean, the it was an eyewitness account of Canada's biggest sporting tragedy.
1: I can't and remember I, a, another one that would equate to this. I got to go to a break, but I really, I, I really hope. That if something like this ever happens again and you hope it doesn't but whether it's in a big city or a small town or whatever that this would be a template for don't 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 try and put on a show this wasn't a show even the mayor I mean the mayor is not a great public speaker it was 5500 people he's yeah. got a full-time job Did, he's not a full-time mayor no and his his I looked up today I was looking up about Humboldt. There were, I think, six people that finished within t- thirty votes of winning the mayorship, <laughs> like or fifty votes or something. Like they were all he won by something like fifteen votes, and there was only he won. And and I think his total vote count was like twelve hundred. Yeah, well, fifty-five um, hundred people there. And but it wasn't a show. That's that. That's what struck me about this. This was not a. They didn't do anything fancy. There, it wasn't a show. It was just them. They didn't bring in special people to try and up the hey let's make Humboldt look better. It was that's it. It was individual. It was non-denominational. Everybody. The, I just thought um, it was. I thought it was terrific. I thought that being honest was so much better than trying to put on some sort of yeah. show to make Humboldt look like something it wasn't. And you know the amazing part about it is everybody that I've heard from today has said that they loved that about it. That they might somebody might have thought oh maybe you know we don't maybe we should do something to tone it down or this that everybody has said I loved what I saw oh, as I, much as you can love that kind of thing I think they nailed it
0: you're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from 6 to 8 only on 900 CHML Don
1: the uh Don Robertson in studio as he is every Monday the Masters was on on the weekend which is always even if you're not a huge golf fan a lot of people tune in just to see the azaleas it was
4: gorgeous. I it's, mean, that place
1: is looks like they don't let anybody play there for two months leading up. Well, you know, I gotta say something because I, I was there last year, and I think as beautiful as it is, as wonderful as it is, and even and, and certainly live in person, it's it's majestic. I think there's some filters or something on that on those TV cameras because the, the colors seem just almost too perfect at times. I mean, it's really it's the greenest place I've ever seen in my life, but I don't know. Anyway. So, Thursday opening round, Sergio Garcia, defending champ, looks like Scott Radley. No, I I've done better than that. I could have I would not have hit water 5 times on the same hole. I would have figured something out. But anyway, he as most people Excuse know by now on hole 15, which ranked by the way as the third easiest hole on the course by scoring. Sergio Garcia hits five straight balls into the water which was remarkable. No one in the history, 82 years they've played the Masters there. No one has ever done that before. And it got me thinking, is that a was that a good thing or was that a bad thing? And it was bad for him. But do we want to watch these guys and say, you know what? They're human like me. I could go out in the course and I could actually, on that hole, I could beat Sergio Garcia. Is that what we want or do we want to watch golfers who we know we could never be like, and we want to see them do amazing things that we could never duplicate.
4: I think it humanizes it. No, it did. Um, I think that most of the guys I golf with can relate to that. Not the same way, though. He hit the same shot almost every time. Like, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but after a while, aren't you going to hit it a little bit left of that? Take out a different club? Like, he seemingly was hitting the shot he wanted to hit. And I don't, as you can appreciate, I don't know Sergio Garcia, but he seemed to be a slow
1: learner. Well, on that hole he was. Wow. On that hole he was. But then I, he had to stick around and hand out the green jacket. You know, that's not the world's worst thing. Again, having been down to Augusta, and I've only been the once, and I don't certainly- At least if you got a 13. Well, hold on a second. If you are- if you, I didn't get to go behind the scenes and hang out in the Champions Clubhouse and all the rest. But, you know, if you bomb out on Friday and you're no longer playing, but you got to hang out Saturday and Sunday, there are worse places to spend your yeah. day than hanging out at the Augusta National Masters Clubhouse, Championship Clubhouse, and eating the food and everything that they provide. He he was not suffering for his two days of waiting.
4: Well, he he may have been a little sheepish and felt like a bit of a slug on Saturday, but... Uh, and maybe he didn't. But come Sunday after afternoon. The year before you won the masters. So you're still a champ. Like you you can start boasting a little bit on Sunday afternoon and everybody still would have wanted a piece of
1: them. Have you seen have you ever seen the pictures? And again, I've never been in it, but have you ever seen the pictures of the champions locker room at Augusta? No. It is uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. Take take the most lush, luxurious golf clubhouse you could ever imagine and then just ramp it up about threefold. And only the guys who are the living champions get to have a locker in there. Oh really? Oh yeah. And there and it's it is so again, for Sergio, he wasn't even having to hang around with the other golfing riffraff, forget the people. He
4: <laughs> well, gets Well there get, wouldn't be many in there. Mike no. Weir, Tiger. Well, of the Phil living Mickelson? ones, there's
1: probably 12 or 13 Bernard, that are alive. Bernard Langer? Yeah, there's probably 12 or 13 that are alive. Freddie Couples must have won it. He's always in it. It's, uh, it, it was he was not suffering. I assure you, he was not suffering. But on that hole, on that on Thursday, he was suffering. He probably I, wanted to climb into the cup or into well, the, he may as well just dove in the water. I just, it, it got me thinking about it, because it, it definitely humanized him, because we watch these guys and they do things that, on TV, it looks really easy, and if you go watch them in person, it looks really easy. And then you pick up a club and try and do the same thing. And again, last year there was a guy who I can't remember who it was. It might Henrik Svensson. It might have been. Anyway, I can't remember who it was. Took who teed off and mishit one. These guys never mishit a shot. They just, especially a tee shot. They may hook it into the woods or pull it into the woods, but they don't mishit a shot like you or I would. And he absolutely, I don't know how fast the ball comes off a club face when the pros are hitting it. It's fast. And he blasted it right into someone's forehead (laughs) who was sitting off to the side. And if you ever watched, people have an immense amount of trust in these golfers because they line that tee box, and if one of those guys mishits it, you could have that ball go right through your skull (laughs) the way they hit it. And he blasted it off some guy's forehead and the guy burst open like a baked potato and the amazing part to me Don is first of all that how rare it is that a guy does that but second when the guy when he stopped seeing stars he was so excited that he'd been drilled by a PGA golfer which I've, again, I've never really quite yeah, understood. He hasn't got much going on in his <laughs> no. life. Anyway. Well, he'll tell everybody now, hey, I got drilled by so and so. I mean, yeah. the only thing he's probably regretting is that it wasn't Tiger Woods or someone where he could really have a story. But when I watched that happen, and I was actually on the, there are holes that are side, fairways that are side by side. I was watching the other one, and all of a sudden you hear, oh, and you turn around and and, and you realize, yeah, you know what? These people are actually human, they're not automatons. They actually can make mistakes, which is... But again, I go back to Sergio Garcia, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if the people who are watching this are thinking to themselves, this is great, because now not only do I feel better about myself, but Sergio understands what it feels like to be me. Or if, again... I bet he didn't like it much. No, I'm sure he didn't. Or if, again... We go to these events and watch these events because we want to see the miraculous and the majestic and the wonderful. And we don't want to see a golfer look like an average human. We want these guys to be better than us. I uh, didn't get to watch as much Sunday
4: as I would have liked to have. But it's always nice when, you, when, when the mic picks them up. And the caddy and him are chatting and you can hear them he's, and they're going like, so you need to land it about 12 feet to the left past the pin yeah. and it will funnel back down. And I'm going, I was looking at it going, I couldn't even hit the bloody green from where he was. Well, no. Like not in that shot. Even if you could, all you're saying is, oh, please let it just hit the green. Yeah. Don't go in the sand. <laughs> just right. get somewhere on that green and they're determining what he's going to hit. To land where
1: he wants to, yeah. Don't just if I'm hitting it. It's I don't want to kill someone, right. which has come close to happening a couple times. Pop a guy open like a piñata, like the last. Game it was uh, it, you. Not believe how far that ball ricocheted too after it hit that guy's head. <laughs> it was on hole. It was after Amen corner, and I. So I think it was number 14 or fifty, maybe it was 15 the the one that that Sergio had such trouble on. Anyway, it hit the guy on the left-hand side. He was on the left just outside, probably about 60 yards down from the tee box. There was a grandstand. There were the bleacher set up and he had his back against the the thing. It hit his head and ricocheted right across the width of the fairway and people are now spotting the ball. You know how they all run and they try and find where the golfer's ball went and they're all and meanwhile the guy's (coughs) over there looking like he just took shrapnel in the war. But he was thrilled about it, apparently. He was absolutely <laughs> delighted. It's, uh, well, some of those it's balls not, almost seemingly have a vapor behind them. They're going so fast. It's not, of all the things that I want as a piece of memorabilia from going to a golf tournament. It's not tideless on your forehead? A hole in my head is not the number one thing. <laughs> And I, well, although I would argue a hole in my head is better than a hole in some other place that you could take one. Ooh. Yeah, I've never thought about wearing a cup to a <laughs> golf tournament. You know, you know, we're totally off track, but you know who I really love? It? <laughs> See, golf tournaments bring out different c- cata- categories of fans. There are those who just love golf and want to go and watch a tournament. There are those who are along with the people who love golf, and so they're there for the walk on in the park or whatever else. Taking up space that somebody that loves golf should be. Sure. But if you're, I mean, if you know, if, if you were a diehard, huge golf fan and Sue's your wife wanted to, you know, was just wanting to spend time with you and do something with you, she may not be the biggest fan, but we'll do something together. So that's fine. There are those, there are those who uh, for whatever reason have just decided to check it out and they don't really know what they're doing or what they're supposed to be looking at. That's fine too. The people that I love, and I say this with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek on the golf course, and i have seen this several times at different places canadian opens and us opens and the masters the people that i love are the ones who show up wearing a golf glove <laughs> and i have seen this several times now and i'm thinking to myself what are you actually thinking when you wear a golf glove like is the thought going through your mind that maybe if a guy pulls his oblique muscle they're put on an announcement if anybody is ready to play now and has a golf glove, please approach T-Box 4. You're in. I, is that what people are thinking when they wear even like baseball, Don? If you take your baseball glove to the park, at least there is a function for it because there could be a line drive that comes scorching towards your head and you'd rather catch it with a glove on than. You with don't your need it in the upper head. deck, but long first
4: and third, maybe.
1: And so if someone shows up, if, even if an adult. A grown, mature adult shows up wearing a baseball glove. I never really question it because I've sat in the stands and seen a guy catch a line drive with his bare hand and it was 10 minutes later he looked like that guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark who picked up the medallion. He had the baseball seams burned into the palm of his hand and he was in agony. So that's, you know, I can see bringing a glove. There's a function to that, a baseball glove. But you never see... At a leaf game or a bulldog's game, some kid walk in with his goalie glove. Or a stick. Or a, or a mask. You don't see someone So but at golf tournaments you see guys occasionally and it's all and by the way, it's always guys. I've never seen a woman show up wearing a golf glove. It's always guys, and for some reason because women are smarter than men. I don't know if it's if they actually think they might get in. I don't know <laughs> if they think that somehow it's it makes them look like a really serious golfer. Like if I wear my golf glove to the Masters, you know what? Tiger might see me. He might know that I'm really serious about golf. The thing that that would have likely set you right off,
4: like your story is setting me off. I'm sick, by the way. I'm getting sicker by the second here, so I'm really getting punchy. But you didn't look down. You know he was wearing his golf shoes.
1: But see, I don't even mind that. Because that's not even a bad move. That's not a bad move because you're walking up and down hills. Yeah. You need the grip. So shoes... Again, it's like we're taking a baseball glove to a game. If you're on the first or third baseline, there is function behind that. There's a reason behind it. But there is no discernible reason why a person at a golf tournament would wear a golf glove. It serves no purpose other than to give you grip on a club. I can't, uh, uh, unless I'm missing something, unless you need it to hold your beer to keep your hand from freezing. Michael Jackson used to wear one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, okay. If Michael Jackson shows up at the Masters someday with his glittery glove, a the fact that he came back from wherever he was is impressive, and b I don't think anyone's going to question Michael Jackson. Not the way, was. but even then, there were people who would show up at Michael Jackson concerts wearing one glove. Well, there you go. In case he, they wanted him to come out and sing, in case Moonwalk one in, in, in case Tito couldn't make it that night, or Jermaine, and they needed an extra for the five. I suppose that's it. You right? know if.
4: There's a better chance that happened than you getting asked to take a rip at one. Uh,
1: anyway, I just uh, the, the, I go back to Sergio. I I love the fact, on the one hand, that for five minutes, that's probably what it took, right? Five minutes was the whole time he was playing that shot. I bet if you ask him, over. he'll say it was an hour and a half. But Maybe. yeah, you're
4: five hours or five minutes.
1: I love the fact that he understands what it's like to be one of us for those five minutes on the golf course. I don't know that anyone watching it, though, was having a lot of fun. How do you do that
4: and with the camera on you without, first of all, snapping that club across your knee after? Well, certain, showing
1: tremendous patience after the fourth time. At a certain point, I think you've probably just realized, I'm done. And not dropping
4: at least a small F-bomb.
1: But again, do you, you not can't think... not be happy. Do you not think that maybe after he's put three in the water and he realizes that his tournament is done, now he's thinking, well... I get to hang out in the champions clubhouse and be f- eating filet mignon, drinking high-end wines for the next two days. Life could be worse. Yeah, you they put know. two more in to make sure I'm out. When you put
4: <laughs> when you put it in proper perspective, you're right. I made three. It's million, not the worst place to have to spend a Saturday and a Sunday. I made
1: three million Canadian last year in my winnings. Uh, it's supposed to rain tomorrow. I'll be dry. Yeah, and uh, I've already got my green jacket. I'm a member here for life now long as I live, I get to hang out in that Champions Clubhouse. I I don't think he was hurting too badly. Yeah, Butler's Cabin looks kind of cool. Have you ever, did you win it? No. Did you no. get to see it? We walked by it. Uh, we walked by the presidential uh, Eisenhower cottage, which is right on right near the 18th Green, is the cottage that was built for the president, for Eisenhower, and he would go down there and that was he would just walk out there and be right onto the course when he was vacationing down there. And they still have the... the gold or bronze presidential seal of the eagle, not, not the presidential seal, a big eagle above the door. and uh, so Presumably, uh, President Trump's only
4: going there if they call it the um, Trump-Augusta golf course. Hey,
1: he might be able to buy it.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.